Space. It seems to go on and on forever. But then you get to the end, and the gorilla starts throwing barrels at you. And that's how you write up a PhD thesis. You stink, loser! Hey, Nick, pizza's going out. Come on! I hate my life, I hate my life, I hate my life. Applied cryogenic, 64th floor. So much for a great end to 2007. New Year's Eve. Hello? Pizza delivery for... Oh, man. I always thought at this point in my life, I'd be the one making the crank calls. Here's to another lousy New Year. Ten. North. Otto. Saba. One, one, zero. Jinkwe. Route 16. Senhao. Zwei. One. Happy New... What the... God, it's the future. My parents, my co-workers, my girlfriend, I'll never see any of them again. Yahoo! Welcome to the world of tomorrow. Why do you always have to say it that way? Haven't you ever heard of a little thing called showmanship? Come, the Jodcast awaits. The Jodcast, the perfect cure for the New Year hangover. With Megan Argo, David Alt, Stuart Lowe, Ian Morrison, Tim O'Brien, and Nick Rattenbury. The Jodcast, January issue. Happy New Year! Happy New Year, everybody, and welcome to the January 2008 issue of The Jodcast. We're joined today by Stuart and Nick. Hi, Dave. Hello. Hello, Dave. But also Tim. Hello, Tim. Hello. It may be the beginning of 2008, but it is also the beginning of our third year of podcasting. Yes, the Jodcast is two years old, this issue. And I can hardly believe it. I've seen, I've seen <laughs> people's hair getting greyer over the period. <laughs> <laughs> I'll not say who. <laughs> well, in the show, this issue... We have an interview with Anna Watts from the Max Planck Institute for Astrophysics. We have The Night Sky with Ian Morrison. And a roundup of our favourite astronomy images and stories from 2007. We also got your listener feedback and a roundup of what's coming for the Jodcast in 2008. But first, before all of that, we have the news with Megan Argo. In the news this month, Black Hole Blasts Companion Galaxy. Latest results from Venus Express, and Earth's moon may be younger than thought. Galaxies are often seen colliding with each other in violent interactions. These energetic events distort beyond recognition the original shapes of the galaxies and result in some of the most spectacular objects in the sky. Astronomers using a variety of telescopes have now seen another kind of interaction. A powerful jet from a supermassive black hole is blasting into a nearby galaxy. The system, known as 3C321, consists of two galaxies in orbit around each other. It is thought that most galaxies contain a supermassive black hole at the centre, and these two are no exception. The black hole in the centre of the two galaxies is producing a large jet which travels out into space, an effect which has also been seen in other galaxies. What is different about this system, however, is that the smaller of the galaxies is passing through the jet. 
This unusual interaction was discovered after an observing campaign, which used the Chandra X-ray satellite, the Hubble Space Telescope, the Spitzer Space Telescope, and the Very Large Array and Merlin radio telescopes on the ground. The two galaxies are relatively close together, just 20,000 light-years apart, about the distance of the Earth from the centre of the Milky Way. In 3C321, when the jet of highly energetic particles hits the companion galaxy, it does substantial damage, transferring massive amounts of energy into the interstellar medium, possibly triggering copious amounts of star formation. This type of event is thought to be quite rare. The jets themselves travel close to the speed of light and do not last very long, and the companion galaxy will not be in the firing line very often. Radio observations indicate that the jet began impacting on the galaxy only about one million years ago, very short compared to the lifetimes of the galaxies themselves. The latest results from the Venus Express mission are presented at the end of November. Venus Express is the first Venus exploration mission of the European Space Agency. It is outfitted mostly with spare parts and designs from the Mars Express and Rosetta missions, but has been adapted to cope with the high radiation and thermal environment surrounding Venus. After being launched in November 2005, it entered its target orbit in May 2006. From this orbit it has studied the Venusian atmosphere and clouds, the plasma environment and the surface characteristics. It is also making global maps of the Venusian surface temperatures. From compositional profiles of the atmosphere around the planet, scientists have now confirmed the presence of lightning, which can have a strong effect on the composition of the atmosphere itself. They also identified the strong interaction with the solar wind as the cause of Venus's atmosphere escaping into space. As the solar particles collide with electrically charged particles near Venus, they energise the gases, stripping them forever from the planet. The first results were published as a suite of eight papers in the journal Nature. The mission will continue until early May 2009. A new study of the chemistry of lunar rocks suggests that the Moon was formed later than thought, altering models of the formation of the solar system. The model of how our planetary system came to be starts with the accretion of material 4.567 billion years ago. We are fairly sure that the terrestrial planets formed by the accretion of lumps of rock, and the common model for the formation of the Moon is a collision between the young Earth and a Mars-sized object, but the timing of this event is uncertain. In the December 20th issue of Nature, a group of researchers published the results of a study into the age of the Moon using measurements of tungsten isotopes. Dating events in the early solar system involves the use of radiometric clocks, measuring the ratios of different isotopes of certain radioactive elements with known decay properties. There are two different clocks often used to date lunar samples, but they give different results. One of these methods uses tungsten 182, which is produced both by the decay of hafnium-182, which has a half-life of 9 million years, and tantalum-182. Tantalum-182, however, is also formed when cosmic rays hit the lunar surface, but previous age measurements have not taken this into account and imply that the Moon solidified within the first 60 million years of the solar system. When the group investigated, they found that the corrected ratio between the amount of tungsten-182 and tungsten-184 is consistent with the younger age for the Moon, and that the lunar magma ocean could not have existed before 62 million years after the beginning of the accretion of the solar system. They also found that the ratio of the two tungsten isotopes is identical in the lunar samples to the ratio found in terrestrial rocks. It is highly unlikely that the Earth and the impactor would have had an identical composition, so this result implies that either the young moon was made up mainly of ejecta from the Earth, rather than large amounts of material from the impactor, or that the material from the Earth and the impactor reached an equilibrium before
before the magma solidified. And finally, on December the 20th, the 62nd General Assembly of the United Nations declared 2009 as the International Year of Astronomy. It celebrates the first astronomical use of the telescope by Galileo, an event that initiated 400 years of astronomical discoveries and triggered a scientific revolution which profoundly affected our world view. The resolution on 2009 was suggested at the International Astronomical Union's General Assembly on the 23rd of July 2003 in Sydney, Australia, and unanimously approved by astronomers around the planet. It was submitted to the UN by Italy, Galileo Galilei's home country. The International Year of Astronomy is intended to be an activity for all citizens of planet Earth. Under the central theme of the universe yours to discover, it aims to convey the excitement of personal discovery, the pleasure of sharing fundamental knowledge about the universe and our place in it, and the merits of the scientific method. International Year of Astronomy events and activities will promote a greater appreciation of the inspirational aspects of astronomy. So far, 99 nations and 14 organisations have signed up to participate, and more details can be found on the website at www.astronomy2009.org. Thanks, Megan. And now we're going to move to the slot, which is dominated by you. It's our listener feedback. First, some news about our competition winner, who got the binoculars. Yep, that's Chris Rose of Australia. He gave his email address in our survey, and he was actually the second lucky winner, because the first lucky winner didn't respond to us, so they didn't get their pair of binoculars. Um, so we had to pick a, a second winner. We got Professor Simon Garrington, the director of Merlin, the multi-element radio-linked interferometer network, to draw us a winner from a hat. And the winner was Chris Rose of Australia. So congratulations to Chris. And I got an email yesterday saying that he'd actually just received his binoculars. So I hope he gets a chance over the new year to go out and have a look. So yeah, well done to Chris Rose of Australia. And on to our emails, we had Christmas greetings from Joe Jones. So thank you very much, Joe, and I uh, hope you had a wonderful Christmas. In fact, we hope all our listeners had a wonderful Christmas. And we received a Christmas card this year. Thank you very much indeed to Jason Hill for sending us a Christmas card. It felt us all warm and fuzzy inside. So please, people, if, we're, uh, if you do get a chance, do send us uh, postcards. We love getting real mail. It's a, it's a nice throwback to the olden times when you put pen on paper and send it through the, the mail. It's wonderful. Maybe we'll get Jodcast birthday cards next year. Is the appropriate birthday card the 1st of January, then? Because they're dead. Um, I think it was a bit later than the 1st of January, the very first show. Yeah, so if you want to send us a Jodcast birthday card, our official birthday is the 14th of January. Perhaps I should move on to the iTunes reviews. Yes, I think that might be a good idea. Actually, after the severe lack of iTunes reviews we had at the last show, we've actually had seven since then. Some of them admittedly were sent just before we released the last show, but after we'd recorded it. We've had seven reviews. We had four from the UK store. That was a repeat review from Patio, a review from Pilopupus, Mawek, and Aurora Lionheart. And we had two reviews on the US iTunes store from DJ Quay and Dr. Purr. And we also had a review on the Swiss iTunes store, our very first review on the Swiss iTunes store there from Mozzie 41 saying that we're cutting-edge, insightful and profound, and entertaining all in one. Ah, uh, we like Mozzie 41. So hello to all our friends, all our listeners in Switzerland. And also thank you, thank you, Pilot Poopus, Aurora Lionheart, oh, and DJ Quay, who have commented on the intros and outros, saying, hilarious, funny, and so on, so I'm happy as well. Now, someone else wanted to know what the intro music was called. Sorry to disappoint you, but it's just some copyright-free music that I found... We were in a hurry at the beginning, at the very beginning, and we wanted to find some sort of music, and that's just what I grabbed off my CD rack. We kept on asking in 
in our first and indeed our second year that, that if anyone had any new intro music or wanted to uh, rework, remix the intro music, just like the Doctor Who theme tune got remixed for the Christmas episode, then you are more than welcome to. Just let us know. Did anyone else see the bad astronomy in the Doctor Who Christmas episode? Yeah. Oh, what, what, what do you mean? Oh, the meteors in space. Yeah, with the huge, huge fiery yeah. tails and things. Yeah. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, I think you've got poetic license if you Doctor Who or any other sci-fi program, really, haven't you? And they did fall from orbit pretty quickly as soon as the engines stopped. Yes, <laughs> turned straight towards the planet, yes. It's like, it's like the I have, I have a classic question I ask when I talk to kids and they're, they're obviously very interested in black holes and, and uh, one of the things I sometimes say is, what do you think would happen if the sun turned into a black hole now? And of course the vast majority of people, including the teachers, quite often say, oh, we'd all get sucked into it. And you sort of have to point out that, you know, the gravity of the sun wouldn't actually change, so you'd carry on orbiting. It might get quite dark in about eight minutes, but, <laughs> but, but, but that would be the biggest thing to worry about. So that's usually a bit of a surprise to people. So I guess it's that same, it's that same sort of confusion about being sucked towards something because of its gravity, if you know. Obviously it's a similar thing, isn't it? As the Jodcast representative to Facebook, what, what's been happening there, Dave? Well, um, there have been a few discussions in, on the discussion board about the intros and outros, uh, the best interview, and someone asking, should the intro music be changed? Um, Daniel Stockton wanted to know what everyone's view was on it. He thought the music was cute in a drunk-in-the-country sort of way. <laughs> Although Daniel wanted something slightly more spacey and modern. Uh, but there we go. Oh, Daniel. Daniel, Daniel, Daniel. Uh, also a discussion about the best interview, and the consensus seems to see, seems to say Jocelyn Bell and Sir Bernard Lovell. There we go. Yeah. Oh, they were, yeah, they were both good interviews. Uh, we also have had one wall post on the Facebook group wall, and that's from Richard Hilly. And I'm sorry I haven't done this since October, but, um, yeah, it, we, we're, we're gonna make the Facebook stuff a regular feature now, so please keep joining and keep posting. Uh, Richard Hilly says, hello peeps, just b- dropping by to say I like the show, it keeps the cogs turning in my brain. So there you go, that's another place for you to send mm-hmm. your feedback. Mm-hmm. Very good. Uh, we've also had some email feedback from one of our regular correspondents, uh, Mike Van Veren, who emailed to tell us that on the Yahoo search page, if you search for Jodcast, we don't come in the uh, top ten. And if you search for the Jodcast, we come second. Strange things yeah. are afoot. So it's not just Jodcast, it's THE Jodcast. So now let's move on to our interview. And Nick went to see Anna Watts from the Max Planck Institute for Astrophysics to find out all about magnetars. Here he is. So your research is in magnetars. Well, my research is neutron star spin and vibrations. Okay. So I've done some stuff to do with spin. It's mainly neutron star oscillations of all kinds. Mm-hmm. And so the magnetar stuff is part of that. And then I'm also working, looking, starting to look at other areas, gravitational wave vibrations, that kind of thing as well. Remind so, us a little bit about what a neutron star is. Okay, so a neutron star is an extremely compact object, um, essentially formed entirely of neutrons. It is formed in the aftermath of a supernova explosion of a star that is perhaps 10 times more massive than our own sun. Mm-hmm. So essentially it's collapsed. You have a mass, perhaps about one to two solar masses, basically crushed down into an area. I always say the size of the Isle of Wight. I could say the size of Manchester, <laughs> but it's really crushed down so that actually the nuclei and the atoms essentially have dissolved. And all you're left with are neutrons and protons crushed together directly. And what, what do these things do? 
Well, they have extremely, extreme nuclear physics properties. These are the best laboratories we can possibly come up with for extreme physics. Okay, first of all, because they are so dense and so compact, um, we have to worry about the effects of general relativity. We're packing a lot of mass together into a very, very small volume. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we ha always have to worry about relativity when we do our calculations. Because we're dealing with stuff at such high density, we're really into the realms where the nuclear physics is totally unknown. Um, we call them neutron stars. They might not actually be neutron stars. Um, we really don't know what happens at these kind of densities. Um, the neutrons themselves may be dissolving into their constituent quarks. So there's an awful lot of uncertainty as to what actually lives on the inside of these stars. So great laboratories for nuclear physics. They have the strongest magnetic fields that we know about. Um, they're about 10 orders of magnitude greater than anything we can create in a laboratory on Earth, even for a very short period of time. Mm -hmm. So hugely strong magnetic fields, and they're also extremely fast rotators. We know of neutron stars that spin up to 760 times per second. So th fast. this is pretty fast. So we're dealing with you know, very dense, very compact objects spinning extremely rapidly. Mm -hmm. Why is this interesting physics? Well, I think it's interesting physics so purely because we cannot possibly test these things in the laboratory here on Earth. So essentially what a neutron star, and in fact all compact stars are allowing us to do, is to test our theories somewhere else. You know, we want to see what happens when we get beyond our own planet. You know, we're going to crazy densities, crazy spin rates, you know, crazy amounts of relativity, and we want to see what happens. So hopefully we're getting to the point where our theories start to break down. And it's interesting to push all our theories to see where they break. Mm -hmm. How do we observe neutron stars? Okay, well, you can examine them in all different kinds of wavelengths. Um, they were discovered as radio pulsars, and this was regular pulses of radio beams from rapidly spinning objects. We now see them in the X-rays, and the sort of stars that I look at quite often are seen in the X-ray. Uh, we've looked at them in optical, in infrared, so you see them in all kinds of electromagnetic wavebands, and hopefully in the very near future, we will also start to see them in gravitational waves as well. Because they're such compact objects, um, if a neutron star vibrates a little bit and its gravitational field changes, it's going to emit reasonably strong gravitational waves. Hmm. How do you observe these things in X-rays? Okay, so we have fortunately have to use satellites. Um, being an X-ray astronomer is not a ticket to taking you to nice telescopes. Unfortunately, the atmosphere blocks out X-rays, so we have to launch satellites and sit in darkened offices rather than in nice telescope locations <laughs> in Hawaii or Chile or somewhere. And the real workhorse, as far as I've been concerned, is the Rossi X-ray Timing Explorer. Um, that's an X-ray satellite that was launched, I think, nearly 11 years ago now, that basically picks up X-ray photons from these particular objects. Mm. So the reason, the reason you're seeing X-rays from these things is because they're accreting from a companion. Right. So these neutron stars are actually in a, a binary system. They have a star in an in a orbit around it doing what? Well, essentially, neutron stars come in two classes. Some of them are isolated, um, some of them are in binaries. Okay, so the X-ray pulsars, we essentially see them. So the companion star is orbiting around the neutron star, and because the neutron star has such a strong gravitational field, it's actually sucking matter off the companion. Mm -hmm. As this matter spirals in towards the neutron star, um, it forms a disk of material around the star, and this gas and dust gets very, very hot, and that emits in the X-rays. And that's why we see the X-ray emission from these systems. Would we see these things as a pulsar as well, a radio pulsar as well, or is something different going on? Well, it seems to be the case that either you see them in X-rays or you see them in radio. So the accreting systems are not generally seen in radio, probably because the fact that you have all this kind of 
gas and stuff around things actually blocks the radio emission. So there's now some tentative detections of radio emission from these systems thought to come from perhaps a jet of material being launched from the surface of the star. But generally, we don't get radio pulsations, unfortunately. But we do get X-ray pulsations. What do you learn from your X-ray pulses that you see? So a material gets dumped onto the neutron star, or rather onto the accretion disk, and it emits some X-rays. What do you learn about the neutron star? Okay, well, it depends what you start looking at. So for some systems, it looks like as the material falls in towards the star, it's basically scooped up by the magnetic field of the star and channeled towards the magnetic poles. So you can think of these as the poles of a bar magnet stuck within the star. Then as the star spins, you see um, these kind of hot spots of X-rays swinging past you. So you can actually look again at the regular pattern of pulsations and get the spin period of the star so you know how fast it's rotating. That starts to tell you all kinds of interesting things about what it's made of. For example, if a neutron star was too soft, as you spun it more and more rapidly, it would actually fly apart. So we can start to say, all right, well, it has to be at least made of of these constituents, otherwise it would fly apart if it was rotating that fast. Other things we can do are to start to model what the pulsations look like. Um, The pulsation shape is set by all kinds of interesting things, like the gravitational field strength at the surface of the star. And you can start to look at gravitational light bending, see what, again, what relativity is doing to your light curve. Mm -hmm. So you can try and work out the gravitational field strength. Again, the real goal here is to try and pick out the mass and radius of the star, because that tells you what the nuclear physics inside must be doing. Right. Is the material being dumped onto the neutron star or onto the accretion disk, is that constant? Does that happen all the time? Or is there, does it turn on, turn off? What happens? Essentially, material is always being transmitted into the accretion disk. Okay, we assume that most of these systems, material is constantly flowing into the accretion disk. Um, the question is then whether it's flowing from the accretion disk onto the neutron star. Some systems, it seems that they're always on. Um, material is always processing you know, through the accretion disk and onto the star. That's not true for all systems. Some of them are what we call transient. The transient systems seem to switch on and off. Sometimes the disk is unstable and matter is falling in towards the neutron star, and sometimes it's perfectly stable, the whole system disappears in X-rays, and the accretion process seems to stop. Hmm. Does matter actually get stuck on the neutron star? Does the neutron star get heavier in this process, or does it all get radiated away in some form of energy? No, it will be getting heavier. It takes a long time to make a neutron star much heavier, but yet it will be getting heavier over time. So the question we could ask is, how long will it take for a neutron star accreting matter like this to become a black hole? Because a neutron star is almost a black hole, right, in terms of its, in terms of its mass. Well, then the big question is, how big can a neutron star get? Mm. And what mass are they born with? And those are not questions that we know the answers to yet. Because the nuclear physics is so uncertain, um, there's no really great upper limits on how big a neutron star can be. So uh, that's a really open question, and we don't know the answer to it yet. Could you answer it through, this, through these observations, do you think? If you can pin down what the right nuclear physics is, then yes, you might be able to. So, but that's, that's really the main game in, in neutron star astrophysics, at least as far as I'm concerned, is figure out what the nuclear physics inside is doing right. and trying to find various ways of doing that. How else can you investigate what a neutron star is made of or the, the, these, this internal physics? You mentioned something about gravitational waves. Tell us about what a gravitational wave is. Okay, so gravitational waves are emitted when objects change their gravitational field. It's essentially some way of letting the rest of the universe know that the gravitational field has changed. Um, So one particular idea with a neutron star is that if you set it vibrating in some way, as it vibrates, its gravitational field will change. 
And as that happens, gravitational waves have to be emitted to the rest of the universe to tell the universe that the gravitational field is changing. Mm -hmm. So you should see some kind of periodic gravitational wave signal, if you can detect it, to tell you this is happening. Let's ask first the obvious question. What is a gravitational wave? What's waving? (laughs) Okay, essentially, um, the standard... I guess the standard argument is that it's a vibration in space-time. That, I don't think, really tells you particularly very much. So let's talk about what would happen if a gravitational wave went through you. If one flows through me sitting here, essentially what will happen is I will be made alternatively taller and then slightly broader and then taller and broader again. Hmm. So it's stretching me, um, the length scales, and also the time scales as well. Essentially, space itself is being stretched in different directions as this wave goes past. Exactly. Hmm. What do you experience yourself? Do you feel yourself getting stretched in one direction and then in another direction? Well, fortunately, gravitational waves are going to be so weak that you would probably never, ever feel it. Mm. The one really challenging thing about finding gravitational waves is that they're extremely difficult to detect. They don't interact very much with matter. Okay, so this is, you know, really, really hard things to try and find. There are a whole host of experiments operating now, like LIGO and GEO, for example, big detectors trying to look for these very, very tiny shifts in space-time. And fortunately for you or I, even if a neutron star blew up next door, you know, we're not going to be destroyed by this kind of thing, at least not by the gravitational waves. Tell us how these experiments work. The current experiments are all ground-based. What you have essentially are two uh, perpendicular arms, and you fire a laser up and down each one. You send the laser light up to the end, reflect it, and send it back. Um, And then you recombine it and see if essentially the waves still add together or whether one of them has travelled a tiny little bit further suddenly and things are not quite adding up perfectly when you put the laser light back together. And this is because space itself has been stretched in one particular direction. Exactly, exactly. So you're looking for tiny stretches of the arms, seeing what happens and seeing if you can then recombine things. Is it working yet? (laughs) The experiments are working. LIGO is at its design sensitivity. They haven't found anything yet. So the question, I guess, now is what is going to be the first thing that they find? I guess probably the most likely signal that they will get first is the gravitational waves emitted by two black holes orbiting each other. It's a much stronger source. It's probably going to be much more likely. In terms of vibrations from neutron stars, the predictions are that the signals will be a lot weaker. It's probably unlikely we'll see something with the current generation of detectors, but maybe with the next instantiation we might see something. So there are lots of plans to upgrade these things. But gravitational waves are going to be difficult. So one of the questions is, can we do better with other sources, perhaps not looking at gravitational waves? Like what, for instance? Perhaps to try and introduce the the field that I've been working on most recently, actually the best way for me to start with this is to start not in the stars, but to start here on Earth. So on the 26th of December 2004, there was a catastrophic earthquake off the western coast of Sumatra that launched the devastating tsunami. Mm. Now, in the aftermath of that event, in addition to all the humanitarian stuff, there were seismologists going to work to study this earthquake. And what they did was two things. So first of all, they looked at the transient behaviour associated with the event. So look at your seismographs, look at the vibrations, work back to figure out where the crust fractured, You know, where was the earthquake, how deep was it, how fast was it, and so on. The second thing, because this is such a powerful earthquake, it actually set the whole surface of the planet ringing. So the whole of the Earth started ringing like a bell. Of course, we didn't didn't hear this. No, no, no. For days and days afterwards, it was vibrating gently. Mm -hmm. Okay, and you can look at the frequencies of that, the decay rates and so on, and use that to infer things about what the Earth is made of. Mm. 
Now, less than 48 hours after that, the Earth got hit by the brightest bunch of gamma rays that's ever been recorded. And the source of that event was a starquake on a neutron star. And a neutron star with an incredibly strong magnetic field, um, what we call a magnetar. And after this starquake, um, looking in the afterglow, in the X-rays, astronomers discovered the first hints of seismic vibrations from the neutron star in exactly the same way that they'd found these global vibrations of the Earth. So this was done by a group of Italian astronomers led by Gianluca Israel. So this was really exciting. I guess people like myself had always assumed that we might have to wait for gravitational waves to come along to start doing neutron star seismology. But here we have something in X-rays and gamma rays vibrating away after a catastrophic starquake and we can start to study it, you know, we can start to study this now. What is a starquake, though? I mean, a star isn't like the planet Earth. The planet Earth has got sort of solid bits stuck on a, on a, a fluid centre, let's say. But a star is a big ball of gas, right? How does a star quake? Not a neutron star. A neutron star is actually a good deal more like the Earth. So I guess our current picture of what a neutron star is made of, on the interior you have what you can call a nuclear fluid. So perhaps neutrons that behave like a superfluid, and because they're simply so dense, it's like a gloopy, gloopy fluid of neutrons. So we have a fluid core of some kind. As you get towards the outer layers, um, where the pressures start to fall off, you form a solid crust. Now, the solid crust, if you start from the outside and move in, on the outside I have pretty much normal nuclei. Okay, everything's still hanging together. As things get more and more squashed, as I go deeper neutrons start to leak out of the nuclei. Okay, so everything starts to break down and get squashed um, as you go towards this deep crust. So essentially, in a neutron star, you do have a crust and a core. Hmm. So it's very similar to a the, the solid shell, around a fluid thing. And what causes the quake? Okay, so in these particular stars, they have extremely strong magnetic fields. So a standard radio pulsar, you would have perhaps uh, a magnetic field about 10 to the 12 gauss. For a magnetar, we're talking a magnetic field about 100, perhaps 1,000 times stronger than that. Okay, so these are really unusual objects, quite a small population. Mm-hmm. And then the picture is that over time, the magnetic field starts to decay. And actually, the field lines, if you think about the field lines of a bar magnet, they start to twist as things start to decay. Mm-hmm. And as they twist up, they get tangled. And eventually, you get to the stage where the whole system is unstable. And what the star really wants to do is for these magnetic field lines to break and reconnect, okay, to a more stable configuration. And it's very similar to the process um, that launches solar flares, okay, as the sun's magnetic field gets tangled. When the field lines break and reconnect, we get a burst of gamma rays. And these stars emit very regular bursts of gamma rays, Mm -hmm. mostly quite small scale, but we see them. Very rarely we get an absolutely huge burst of gamma rays. And this was the type of event that we saw this time round. These events are at least a thousand times stronger than the normal flares. And I guess the picture is it's more like a large, a large scale earthquake, a magnitude nine earthquake. Suddenly, these tiny reconnections don't get you out of trouble. And the whole magnetic field is so unstable that the only thing the star can do is for the whole configuration to change. You know, every magnetic field line snaps at once. The whole configuration uh, shifts, and you get a huge, huge burst of gamma rays coming off the star. And from these gamma rays, you can then tell what the essentially the seismic activity was on, on this neutron star. Absolutely. And that presumably means that you can figure out what the neutron star is made of. So that's what we've now been trying to do. It's a complicated problem. 
we're dealing with a very difficult system, complicated nuclear physics. So, but yeah, essentially what we're trying to do is to figure out the internal composition. So we've taken a look at the frequencies that we've seen. For the 2004 event, we know the neutron star emitted at least seven different notes or frequencies, ranging from 18 hertz up to 1800. So to put that in context, middle C is, is around 260 hertz. Yeah, that's right. Okay, so we've got a whole range of different notes. We then looked at another giant flare from back in 1998, found the same kind of things in the afterglow, and we have at least four different notes from that neutron star. So then the question is, what are they? You know, can we work out what type of vibrations we're actually seeing? So I think we're getting there. What we think we are seeing, first of all, there is a component from the neutron star's crust. So essentially, it's a twisting motion of the neutron star's crust. So rather than vibrating in and out, the crust is actually literally twisting without moving in and out. And we see that shifting to and fro. We also have a component from the fluid core of the neutron star, um, and again, it's a twisting motion. And the reason why we see this is because of this hugely strong magnetic field. If I try and twist that, it wants to twist back and it starts vibrating. There's a lot of complicated physics working out how this fluid core couples into the crust. How are the two joined together? Yes. You know, why do we see the particular frequencies that we see? But essentially, we're seeing you know, both a component from the crust and from the core itself. Mm. There's, there's an intermediate step, though. It's not exactly the same as um, looking at an earthquake on Earth because we're measuring the actual waves or the motion of material going wobble, wobble, wobble as the earthquake passes and as the Earth itself does its ringing thing. Yeah. On your neutron stars, though, on these magnetars, you are converting the seismic activity into a gamma ray release, and you've got to work back from the gamma rays to what's happening on the crust. How hard is that? That's one of the biggest questions that we have how on earth are we seeing these things? You know, just because I am shaking the surface of the star, why on earth should I see anything, basically, in the X-rays and gamma rays? Mm. So I think the best picture right now is, if you can imagine, I have my magnetic field lines on the star basically sticking through the crust into the core. I mean, you can imagine it, if you like, as carpet fibres. Okay, so it's fibres sticking up from the carpet. I'm shaking the carpet around, and these fibres are shaking around as well. And so the idea would be that as I'm shaking the magnetic field lines to and fro, basically I'm getting little extra bursts of gamma rays on a periodic fashion as I'm doing it. The frequency of the gamma rays that you see mm -hmm. here on Earth is directly related to the frequency of the, the neutron star. Yeah, we think so. So there's a little bit of drift around. So if you can imagine the notes that we hear is not entirely pure notes. It seems to drift around a little bit, um, but it's pretty stable over a long period of time, so for 100 seconds or so. So it looks like there's some kind of stable clock, vibrating clock, if you like, underneath this whole system. Then the question is, OK, well, what happens as I try and transmit that information outwards? The drift is an interesting phenomenon. It could be to do with the emission mechanism of why we see these things. However, there's another possibility, and it's because of the way that the core and the crust have to tie together. And actually, if you try and model these things, you can get frequency drifts purely because of the weirdness of how this fluid magnetic core has to tie in with the crust. Mm -hmm. You can imagine it like essentially having two pendulums coupled together. Okay, so I start vibrating one, it gradually starts moving the other one, that one starts to move, and gradually they move to and fro. How many of these systems do you know of? Well, we have two that have shown vibrations, and that is it. In terms of magnetar systems, basically there are a few more than ten. 
not a huge number of systems. These high magnetic field systems that burst regularly seem to be very, very rare. Mm. They come in two classes, uh, soft gamma repeaters, um, or SGRs, which seem to burst fairly regularly, and there were also a class of stars called anomalous X-ray pulsars. We now know that these two classes are probably the same. We just caught them at different times in their lives. They now seem to show pretty similar behaviour. But basically, we don't have a lot of stars to play with. Can we discover more? Well, we think we've probably found all the ones nearby that are going to burst. There are other stars that may be magnetars that aren't bursting at the moment, so it's possible that at some point they may start. But I think some of the estimates are that we've probably found all the ones that we're going to find nearby. Mm. But at least you've got several different ways of investigating the same objects, right? I mean, you, you have your gamma ray observations, you have gravitational wave observations as well. Hopefully. Yeah, yeah, hopefully. <laughs> That's true. So one of the nice things we can do, and we're starting to do this now, so in addition to these gigantic explosions, okay, which really give us a lot of information, as I said, these stars also emit very you know, regular small-scale flares. Think of them more like regular small earthquakes, mm. okay, perhaps magnitude four or five earthquakes. So one question we've had is, well, are they vibrating after this as well? And if you look at the mathematics then it's possible the energies are about right. You might be able to trigger you know, small-scale vibrations afterwards. Whether we can see them or not is a difficult question, um, but we've been looking at a very detailed search, essentially to take all this small data from the small flares and try and look for vibrations after that as well. Very exciting research. Well, I think why it's exciting is the potential. So because we now have these, these different vibrations, we can now start to figure out what the neutron star is made of. So that's been particularly thrilling. Why are we all caught up in the fact that it has to be a neutron in the neutron star? Why has a neutron star has got to be made up only of neutrons? I mean, that seemed to be fairly standard theory for, for quite some time. And now you're telling us that it, it may not be? Well, I was traumatised on the first day of my doctoral research when I discovered that neutron stars may not just contain neutrons. I think the nuclear physics people have known for a long time that it's likely to be more complicated. It's a conspiracy of nuclear theorists. They, Absolutely. They, they weren't telling the rest of us. And actually, it's even worse than that. They may not be neutron stars at all. They could actually be no neutrons in a neutron star. One hypothesis has been that they're actually strange stars. So rather than having neutrons, which are made up of up and down quarks, um, we have a kind of horrible mix of strange quarks, up and down quarks um, in the middle of these things. And in fact, there are no neutrons there at all. And that's quite possible. How, how distinguishable would that be, given the data that you're getting and the analysis that you're getting? Would it be very clear whether a star was one of these strange objects made up of strange quarks? up and down quarks, as opposed to what we currently like to think of as you know, a basic neutron star made of, believe it or not, neutrons. Is that, is that going to be clear from your, your, your data, hopefully? Well, it, it, it may be. So one of the real challenges for a long time has been finding good observational signatures okay, that will distinguish neutron stars from strange stars. Strange stars are probably thought to have smaller radii. Okay, so the radius of the star, overall its volume is smaller. Mm. Similar masses, but smaller volume. The difficulty that we have is that where we can measure neutron star mass quite reasonably, it's extremely difficult to measure neutron star radius. And these are tiny, tiny objects. You know, they're very far away. We can't resolve the disk of the star, so you can't measure the radius. You have to try and guess it from looking at other measurements. So picking out the radius has been really, really challenging. How would you measure the radius of a neutron star? Well, you can do several things. One thing, for example, is to look at the rate at which it's cooling. 
So that's related to the surface area of the star. Unfortunately, it's also related to the nuclear physics inside, so you, you start from problem one again. Mm-hmm. You can also try and infer it, for example, by looking for emission lines, perhaps, from the surface of the star and picking things up from there. It's, again, it's all very model-dependent, so it's a very, very difficult thing to do. So that's where we hope seismology might make a difference. One quite exciting thing is that strange stars have different crusts. They may not have crusts at all. You may just have a ball of strange quark matter fluid, which is pretty horrible. Or alternatively, you may have a crust, but it will be different to a neutron star crust. They tend to be much thinner, so that makes a difference to the type of frequencies and the type of vibrations you can excite. So one thing we've just finished doing is to calculate essentially the natural frequencies for a strange star crust for the various different models. And actually, it's very hard to explain our observations if it's a strange star. Mm. Okay. So it, it's certainly not, we're certainly not at the final answer. This is a horrible problem in physics, but we're getting there. And I think this might be a very, very good way to tell the difference between the two types of star. Have you managed to measure anything about these neutron stars yet? So yeah, one of the things we've, we think we've managed to measure is the thickness of the neutron star's crust. What we're seeing when we see these vibrations is essentially the whole crust essentially moving sideways and vibrating back. So you can imagine for the lowest frequencies, the whole crust essentially is shifting as one slab sideways and then back again. Mm-hmm. As we go to the higher frequencies, we come across what are called radial overtones. So now you can imagine that essentially I've fixed a point in the mi- middle of the crust, okay, halfway down, and the top half of the crust is moving one way, and the bottom is going the other way. Right. And so this vibrates a little bit faster, and we get a higher frequency. Mm. Now, that frequency depends directly on the thickness of the crust. So we are very, very lucky in one of our observations that we think we found this radial overtone. And that tells us what the crust thickness should be. Now, the value that we've got is actually much thicker than we thought. It's on the borderline of what was thought possible. That presumably means it's more likely to be a, a neutron star as opposed to a strange star. Actually, well, yes, it essentially gives you a very, very low mass. So it's actually quite borderline for a neutron star as well. Mm. Um, it makes the mass about 1.2 solar masses, which is getting pretty small, but these are unusual objects. So maybe one of the reasons they're unusual is because they have such small mass and such high fields. So we're not quite sure what it means yet. Again, we need to refine our calculations. But if we have the crust thickness, as well as all these other frequencies, that's great because it actually lets us put really, really tight constraints on what the nuclear physics is doing. So I think as we get more confident in our models, this is going to be a really promising way forward. How can you be sure that when you look at the data that you get, the frequencies that you're observing are in fact due to these radial overtones and not due to some other kind of movement on the star? Okay, so there are two things. One is simply to ask, well, what are the right types of vibration I can excite? Okay, so the fact that we think these are are twisting motions rather than motions in and out is because doing motions in and out is very, very difficult against this strong gravitational field. Mm. Okay, so we think that we are seeing some kind of essentially sideways vibrational motion. So that narrows things down. So the other reason is simply that it is so much higher than all the other frequencies, okay? It's, and also it's exactly where modelling um, mm. puts it. So we've done, we've essentially made neutron star crust models, people have made predictions for where this frequency should be, and it's extremely close to where we expect it to be. And we really don't know anything else that could be around there. I mean, that's, I guess if someone came up with a different model and said, no, actually this type of vibration would also fit, then that would be fine. But right now we have no other candidates for what it is that we're seeing.
a spectacular measurement to make. The, the crust of a neutron star, its thickness, that's fantastic. It is. <laughs> well, we wish you all the very best in your research, and we hope to hear the answer soon. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Well, thanks, Nick. Now let's move on to talking about our favourite images and stories of 2007, looking back over the year that's passed. Uh, Stuart, tell us your favourite pictures and stories. Okay, well, I, I had a, a few images that were, were vying for my, my top images. Um, amongst them were the pictures of the holes on Mars, which were really cool. These black circles on Mars, which were suspected to be openings of Ooh. lava tubes, but they were just pitch black, and you really couldn't see anything in them, which meant they had to be quite deep. Um, and then later on in the year, we got some images with the sun illuminating them from the side, and so you could see some of the, the walls of the side of them. So how deep are they? Do you have any, any ideas? Well, they were at least 78 metres deep. Mm. That's as much as you can say from the images that we've got so far, which is bigger than the Lovell Telescope. You could fit the Lovell Telescope into one. You could. They're about 150 metres across, I think. Mm. So you could definitely fit the Lovell Telescope in there mm. and have it turn around. So it made me think of science fiction stories, and that's one of mm. the reasons why I, I liked these huge holes on the mm. on the surface. But also there was the United Kingdom Infrared Telescope's Infrared Deep Sky Survey, which is a zoomable mosaic of the plane of our galaxy, or at least a part of it. The first release of that data is now on the internet, and you can zoom around, zoom in and out, move around, pan around the galaxy, and that is very good fun to play with. So we'll put a link to that in the show notes. So yeah, that was, they were amongst my favourite images of the year. Okay, well, my my picture is one from Astronomy Picture of the Day, and you may remember uh, our feature, our interview with the creator of Astronomy Picture of the Day uh, earlier on in the year. And Christmas Days was a picture of Mars and Orion over the Monument Valley. Now, in Monument Valley, in the foreground of this picture, you've got the famous butts, uh, B-U-T-T-E-S, which are composed of hard volcanic rock left behind after water eroded away the surrounding soft rock. Up above, in the background, you've got a wonderful picture of Orion and Mars. You can really see the deep orange colour of Betelgeuse and the sharp, bright blue of Rigel. And you can even see the fuzzy patch, which is the Orion Nebula in Orion's sword. And over to the far left, a bright orange salmon pink uh, object shining there, and that is, of course, Mars. And I like this because... Mars has recently returned to our skies, and I've been able to see it, even in London, I've been able to see uh, Mars shining there with its orange, salmon, pink, bright light. It's actually, it's mm. always good to have pictures that uh, show different colours of stars as well, because, you know, if you're sort of talking about how the temperature of a star changes its colour, you know, it's really good mm. to have these nice pictures of a famous constellation where you can see this, you know, red star and this bright sort of bluish white star as well. So and so to get a planet into the bargain as well, and the star forming region is uh, is pretty great. Yeah. Oh yeah. There you go. So that's at apod.nasa.gov. Astronomy picture of the day. Always worth looking at. Nick, what's yours? Okay, my one is um, well, it's a bit of a cheat actually because it's not a picture of anything in particular, but it is a picture of some of the results from the Cosmos Survey. The Cosmos is the Cosmic Evolution Survey, and uh, their their goal was to try and make a detailed survey of the deep universe, and they were particularly interested in this uh, dark matter. Now, dark matter is uh, this curious component of our universe which we can't see because it doesn't emit any light of its own. Hence, it's called dark, but it does comprise something like 20-23% of the 
content of the universe. So what they got was a whole pile of telescopes, including the Hubble, XMM, Newton, Spitzer, Keck, and a very large telescope in Chile, and also the VLA in New Mexico and also Subaru. And they stared at a patch of sky, which is about two degrees um, on the side, and managed to image more than two million galaxies. And it's a huge data set. And what they did was develop a three-dimensional map of the galaxies in that direction. And what you could do was you could figure out what the dark matter was doing, uh, how the dark matter was structured in that area by the way that the dark matter affected the light coming from those galaxies. Einstein's general relativity theory said that uh, gravity would bend light, and so it does. The dark matter bends the light from these background galaxies in a very subtle way, so they're able to reconstruct what the large-scale map of the dark matter distribution was. And that's the image that I'm looking at, and it just shows how the dark matter is arranged in a three-dimensional way. It's wonderful. You can actually see, for the first time, the structure of dark matter over a large area of sky. It's a wonderful image. Hey, Nick, wasn't that the one we discussed in an African astronomer back in April? Yes, I think so. There was uh, there was a question which we uh, which we answered, and we discussed how you could make these dark matter maps. And uh, so, if people are interested, then do go to the April show and click on the Ask an Astronomer segment and have a listen to what we discussed. All right. So, Tim, what's your favourite picture or memory from two thousand and seven? Well, I was thinking of, uh, I mean, there's so many amazing pictures isn't there, that come out in astronomy. I'm pretty lucky, really. But there was one in particular that I remember, which was the, the ultraviolet image of Myra. So Myra is this uh, pulsating red giant star. It's, it's, it's very bright. It's, I, think it's a, I think it's naked eye, actually. Maybe second or third magnitude or something. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was observed with a telescope, an ultraviolet telescope, a wide field image and, and amazingly there was this that nobody's ever seen before was this huge tail sort of extending out behind Myra and it looks like uh, what, what's happening is that Myra's got this sort of you know wind from the red giant and as, as it plows through the interstellar medium at sort of 140 kilometers per second or so all this stuff sort of dragged out behind it trails away behind it and uh, I think it, I believe it uh, if my research is a giving me the right information here, I believe it extends about 13 light years or so uh, behind behind Myra. So it's taken it about uh, 30,000 years or so to travel, to, to sort of ex- travel along in that direction, leaving this, you know, turbulent wake of material along behind it. Just incredible. And I think what, you know, the reason I was, you know, I'm particularly interested in that is just that, it, you know, whenever you look at something, you know, with a different, uh, you know, take on things, in this case sort of looking at it with an ultraviolet telescope where nobody had done such a deep image of that before, even with something so bright and so well-known as Myra, um, you, you might well discover something new. And I think that's sort of a, you know, that often comes up in astronomy. Mm, definitely. Yeah, I love that image too. It's fantastic to see how the, the, uh, the material of Myra is drifting off into space. That's incredible though, 30,000 years to move and it's and it's still going. That's, yep. that's just incredible. Moving at 140 kilometers per second. And of course, these things, I mean, you know, when you look up at the sky and you see things sort of, uh, all the stars sort of tend to sit in these fixed patterns of these constellations we think of, you know, it's obviously, the fact is the stars are actually moving, you know, themselves independently. We call it proper motion. Uh, and, you know, even at speeds as high as, you know, over 100 kilometers per second, but they're so far away. Um, that it takes many thousands of years for them to change their apparent positions on the sky, but they but they do, and they leave behind them occasionally these sorts of wakes in the 
in the in the past. And one of the other cool things I like about that image is the bow shock at the front, actually. Yeah, that's right, because the wind is sort of going forward as well, and it sort of gets pushed back by the inside medium, so that sort of bow shock thing at the front, just like this sort of bow wave you get in front of a ship as it's uh, sailing along. Uh, and I was just going to say, just one of my other favourite things that happened to me this year, during 2007, in astronomy at least, um, was the, the the moon bounce that we did in June, where we uh, we had this uh, we had a competition nationally uh, for for a poem um, to be sent to the moon, and uh, and also we had local school kids as well writing poems, and we actually we set up a system with uh, in our marquee here at Jodrell, and we had people read their poems into a microphone, and then with the in fact believe it or not a Jodcast microphone, they they obviously the top quality microphones around here. Uh, and we sent, we then Skyped it down to a friend in, uh, the south of England who has a, had a radio, uh, transmitter and aerial in his back garden, um, because we're not actually allowed to transmit from Jodrell anymore because we're a radio quiet zone. Uh, and he took that sound and sort of transformed it into radio signal and projected it towards the moon. And then obviously it sort of spreads out, hits the moon, bounces back off the moon, the signal spreads out again. It's getting very, very weak by this time returns to Earth and uh, and we used the giant Lovell telescope at Chodrell to pick up the the echo, um, turn that back into a sound and plug it back through the speakers again in the marquee. So you had this incredible uh, experience of, you know, kids sort of standing there and reading a poem and reading a line of the poem and then waiting uh, two and a half seconds and, and hearing back the sort of really weirdly distorted sound of their own voice having been all the way to the moon and back. So I think that was one of my... It was almost a, it was quite an emotional experience, actually. Amazing. There was one hard-bitten Jodrell engineer who even had tears in his eyes as a result of that. <laughs> Believe it or not. Oh. <laughs> I won't name them on the show, but yeah, it was. It was a, it was a, it was an amazing thing. Well, yes, I would have loved to have been there because that sounded like such a fantastic occasion. It was wonderful. And we have some of the audio on the, on the Jodcast, don't we? We do. So if people go and look at the archive for July 2007, um, we put some extracts from the Moonbounce event there, and you can hear some of the kids' poems, which are really cool, and some of the communal shouting at the moon that we did. (laughs) Someone who goes to shout at the moon quite regularly is, of course, Ian Morrison, and here he is to tell us what to look up for in the night sky. Well, Happy New Year to you, and I hope you have plenty of opportunities to observe the night sky in the coming months. January is a very nice time to look at the heavens, partly because of course the nights are long, but also there's a lovely region of the sky that's visible towards the south in the mid to late evening. I suppose the centrepiece has to be the constellation of Orion, the hunter. Three closely packed stars in a very nice straight line, make up his belt, below which hangs the sword of Orion. And with binoculars, you can see a little fuzzy red glow in that region. It's called the Orion Nebula, and it's a birthplace for stars. Ultraviolet light from the very hot stars that form the trapezium at its heart are exciting hydrogen gas to emit a lovely red-pinkish glow called the H-alpha line. If you take the three stars of Orion's belt and work your way up to the right, you first come to the constellation of Taurus the Bull. The eye of the bull, Aldebaran, is a red giant star that's about halfway between ourselves and the cluster of stars we call the Hyades. It actually looks as though it's part of the Hyades, but in fact isn't, uh, and obviously is a lot brighter. 
The Hyades is an open cluster of stars about 600 million years old. It itself has some red giants, but of course, being much further away, they don't look so bright. Red giant stars are the end of the life of, of stars, and eventually our sun is going to expand outwards and perhaps, in fact, encompass the Earth as it becomes a red giant in about 5,000 million years. Further up to the right, we come to that lovely star cluster, the Pleiades. Now here, all the stars are blue or white. We don't have any red giant stars, which implies that the Pleiades is much younger, probably about 100 million years old. It's a lovely sight with binoculars or even a small telescope. Up and to the left of Taurus the Bull is in fact the constellation Auriga, and the brightest yellow star at its height, at the head of it, is called Capella. This is part of the Milky Way, and in the Milky Way of our sky, we do pick up objects known as open clusters, and there are several very nice open clusters to observe in Auriga. It's a, a nice place to scan around with a pair of binoculars. Up to the left of Orion, of course, we have the constellation Gemini, the heavenly twins. And uh, at this moment, in fact, just moving into Taurus as January begins, we have the planet Mars, more of which later. So that part of the sky looks just a little bit different than it normally does. And finally, if you take the three stars of Orion's belt and work your way down to the left, we come to the brightest star that we can see in the Northern Hemisphere. It's Sirius, magnitude about minus 1.5. It's always quite low in the sky, and the twinkling of the atmosphere, the fluctuations in the, in the gas, the turbulent fluctuations, they can actually split the light up. Very often appears to flash with slightly iridescent colours. We often get people ringing up to actually say that they've seen this flashing coloured light in the sky. Well, if it's in the south around January, low down, it's probably the star Sirius. Uh, just a point, uh, Richard uh, emailed us and said that as I go through the night sky page, he actually uh, looks at the things I'm talking about on the Stellarium program, which you can download for free off the web. It's quite a nice planetarium program, gives you quite a nice view of the sky. That's certainly a very good idea, and thanks for sending it in, Richard. OK, let's move on to the planets. It's not a bad month for planets, actually. It's got better in, in, in the last few weeks. And uh, rather nicely, in, in the morning, at about 6 o'clock, you can see both Mars fairly high in the west and Venus dominating the eastern sky. We've missed seeing Mercury and Jupiter for a few weeks, but Jupiter, which actually passed behind the Sun on the 23rd of December... But it's beginning to come round, and uh, as the month progresses, it will rise earlier than the sun, and we can glimpse it in the pre-dawn sky. And I mentioned something else about that in one of the highlights a little bit later on. So we're beginning to see Jupiter, but relatively low down, not a very good time to observe it in any detail just yet. Saturn. Now, that's beginning to come to its best showing for us this year, in the next few months. It rises about 9.30 at the beginning of January. It's about 8 degrees down to the lower left to the star Regulus in Leo, and we therefore can see that uh, probably from midnight onwards it would actually really start looking quite good. Not quite as bright this year as it sometimes is because the rings are closing in, uh, their tilt is about 8 degrees to us at the moment, 
And, in fact, next year, they will actually be edge on, and for a short while we'll see no rings at all. So Saturn getting better in the next few months. We didn't see Mercury last month, but on the 22nd of January, Mercury is what is called Western Elongation. It means that it's at its maximum angular separation from the Sun, and this time we can glimpse it after sunset. Uh, binoculars certainly help, and it's actually best to find a site with a low western horizon and observe, with great care obviously, where the Sun sets. That's actually going to be about 1635 UT on that day. Then as the sky darkens, it should be possible to spot Mercury up at an angle of about 45 degrees, from the point where the sun had set. So that's Mercury. Well, I'm missing out uh, perhaps one of the best planets this month, which of course is Mars. Now, during December, in fact on December the 18th, it was closest to us for about two and a half years. Uh, but in January, it will still be closer and hence larger in the sky, with an angular size of 14 arc seconds just dropping down to about 12, than it will be for the next sort of eight years or so. And uh, so it's still a good time to have a look at Mars. And one advantage of being after what is called opposition, when it's due south about midnight, it will actually be highest in the sky in sort of the mid to late evening, making it perhaps slightly easier to, to stay up and watch. Um, although it's smaller than it was at the very close um, opposition uh, a few years ago, in fact, it's much higher in the sky, so the atmosphere will not sort of limit our viewing as well as it would then and already there's some wonderful images that have been taken by amateurs appearing on the web so look out for mars very very obvious in the sky it's in fact in taurus this month over the year mars will sort of move westwards and it went right into gemini but then as the earth passes it on the inside track it actually goes into what is called retrograde motion and appears to move backwards in the sky and it's now just got into Taurus. It will remain in Taurus for the whole of January. And then in February, it will actually then start moving back into Gemini. Well, finally, I've briefly mentioned Venus. It dominates the morning sky, has a magnitude of about minus four. It's in the constellation of Virgo. The angular size is dropping, but the illuminated area is actually increasing. And these two factors that both affect the brightness roughly cancel out. So it stays almost at the same magnitude, ending the month at minus 3.9 magnitudes. So it's certainly very bright, and you can hardly miss it in the morning sky. OK, well, we'll finish up by mentioning some of the highlights that we have in the sky this coming month. Well, it's very hard, uh, because I'm writing this and speaking it to you uh, in sort of mid-December, to know whether Comet Holmes will still be visible. But certainly it was a couple of nights ago, it does now require binoculars to see, um, and it may not be visible throughout the whole of January, but it's getting very close to Algol, which is the second brightest star in the constellation of Perseus, and it's well worth having a look, particularly in the first week or so, perhaps the first eight or nine days of um, January, when we're approaching new moon, and hence there won't be any moonlight in the sky. As Comet Holmes is getting bigger and bigger, it now has a bigger angular size than the Moon, it's actually becoming less bright, uh, although the total brightness is staying roughly the same, and you do need a dark sky to see it. Well, on the night sky page on the Jodrell Bank website, 
you can find some charts to help you find out where to look. In fact, we have another comet in the sky this month as well, and it's called Comet 8P stroke Tuttle, and it actually runs down on the boundary between the constellations of Aries and Pisces. And on Jan the 3rd, it's actually very close to a lovely galaxy called M74. And again, there's a chart on the night sky page. It should reach uh, a maximum magnitude of about 5. So, theoretically, one could just see it with your own eye, but I suspect one would need binoculars. It's closest, I think, on Jan the 3rd, and it's actually getting quite close uh, as comets go. But that, of course, means it actually moves very quickly. And by about the 14th of January, it's dropped way down into Cesus. So do have a look for, for Comet Tuttle. Well, I've mentioned Mars, still nice and visible in the sky. And do make the most of the next few weeks, because you've got a while to wait until it's going to be as good. Well, we have another meteor shower this month. Uh, they're called the Quadrantids, uh, because in the past... The radiant, that's where the meteors appear to come from, was in a very small little constellation called the quadrant, uh, which is the sort of thing that you could actually measure angles between stars with. In fact, uh, that has disappeared, and we actually find it low below the tail of um, the Great Bear, so that's below the plough. And about the best time to see it would be about 5 o'clock on January the 4th, and very nicely, there'll be no moon in the sky, so they should be very easy to see. And uh, you can get a rate of two, maybe even three meteors per hour. They're not particularly bright, so you want to have a nice dark sky, but that could well be very well worth looking for. Perhaps while you're there, if you've got binoculars, look up to the tail of the Great Bear, uh, and the central star, in fact, you'll see as a double star, Mysore and Alcor, the horse and rider. And, uh, in fact, if your eyesight's good, you can perhaps even tell it's a double star just using your own eyes. Well, finally, at the very end of the month, uh, Venus and Jupiter come into conjunction. To be perfectly honest, uh, the closest they get is on the 1st of February, but on the morning of the 31st of January, they're still within uh, about a degree of each other, and uh, make a very nice triangle uh, with a little star cluster called M22 in Sagittarius. So with binoculars, that might be quite a nice little thing to see. Uh, Venus is at magnitude minus 3.9, Jupiter uh, at minus 1.9. So just spot Venus, look to the lower left for Jupiter, and if you're lucky, down to the lower right, making a nice triangle, is M22, a globular cluster at magnitude 5. So there we go, quite a bit to see. We may well have some uh, long nights to observe. They like to be cold, so if you go out, wrap up well, wear a woolly hat, and maybe have a hot drink with you. Good hunting. Thanks, Ian, and more from him next month. Now... On to the future for the Jodcast. We're at the beginning of a new year, but we've got some quite incredible news for you. Yes, indeed. Now, very, very pleased to announce that our major sponsor for the Jodcast, the Science and Technology Facilities Council, or STFC, have very generously given us another grant to continue making the Jodcast. But wait, there's more. 
we are going to extend into video podcasting. Now, I've had a number of comments over the last couple of years that uh, the Jodcast should get involved in making video podcasts, and so that's exactly what we intend to do. And with this new grant from STFC, we will be getting into um, videoing some of our interviewees and taking you to some of the most exciting astronomy places in the UK and possibly even abroad. So do stay tuned for what's going to happen with the Jodcast. We're moving into video. But the audio Jodcast will continue, so there's no need to worry that we will be disappearing or anything. Yes, indeed. And very excitingly, Dave is going to be getting a belated Christmas present in the form of a new microphone. Woohoo! Not from Fisher Price. <laughs> Maybe eventually we'll stop sounding like we were recorded in the back of a van. <laughs> so, yes, our thanks go to STFC for approving funding for the Jodcast again, and we uh, couldn't do this without them. And coming up in 2008, we'll be attending the Manchester Microlensing Conference to find out about the wonderful world of microlensing. We're also going to be going to Astrofest 2008, held in Kensington Town Hall in London, uh, near the start of February. So anyone who's going along to Astrofest, please come and find us. We'll be at the astronomy.ac.uk stand in the small hall, I think it is, Tim. That's right. Hopefully we'll be bringing you exciting results from Galaxy Zoo, which is scheduled to bring its results out sometime early this year. So thank you very much then to STFC. And thanks also to Anna Watts, Ian Morrison, Megan Argo and Dave Jones. Thanks also to the cast for the intro and outro. And those were... For the voiceover at the beginning, that was Mark Kilfoyle, Nick David McIver, Lou M. Sierra Garcia, Terry Frederick Rhodes, the kid was Zach Bradley, the pizza guy Eric Busby, and the people in the crowd were Sally Wiggett, Steve Anderson, Alistair Stewart, M. Sierra Garcia, Elise Crowick, David McIver, and Frederick Rhodes. Of course, no attempt has been made to supersede or infringe any existing copyright related to Futurama, which of course remains the property of Matt Groening and Fox. And, of course, thanks very much to you guys listening to us. Thank you for downloading us. And uh, thank you for supporting us over the last couple of years and hopefully far into the future. So thanks, everyone, for listening. And do please keep your feedback rolling in via the website at www.jodcast.net or drop us a postcard or send us an uh, email or etc. Uh, it just remains for us to, to wish you once again a happy new year. And we shall see you for the January Extra Edition in about a couple of weeks. Bye-bye. Bye, everyone. Bye. Happy New Year. Wait a minute. What's the date? It's the 1st of January. Yes? 2008. Wow! A million years! No. You fell into the freezer and knocked yourself out. We came for more ice cubes for our party and got you out. Ah, nuts.